Welcome to the Movements Podcast, a podcast for people who want to partner with God to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. I'm Steve Addison, and today we'll be talking to Gary Stump. Gary's a pastor at the Onward Church in Fishers, Illinois, and we're going to be hearing about how Gary moved from being a pastor who is uh, gathering a crowd to a pastor who is making disciples. Welcome, Gary. Tell us a bit about yourself, uh, just a bit of the, your background. I was in the life insurance business for almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. And in uh, 1988, my wife and I had been uh, married for about uh, almost 14 years. And I had been a Christian uh, since 1975. This was in 1988. Uh, we were out one evening and hit by a drunk driver, and uh, Donna was killed instantly. I was hurt pretty bad, and uh, it was an opportunity. God really just asked me, do you really trust me, or do you just say that you trust me? And I've been walking with him. Uh, my wife and I have been doing our life God's way the best we could. We had four young children, hmm. and uh, I had a choice to make, and I just determined I would, I would trust the Lord. And he walked me through that time, and it was after that that God began to deal with me, calling me into the ministry, calling me to be a pastor. And uh, I resisted for a good while, wanting to be sure. Yeah. Finally, in early 1989, I knew that's what he wanted. And uh, so I uh, set off to uh, seminary and uh, uh, trying to prepare myself to be a pastor. And 1991, I became the pastor of a little church, Baptist church on the southeast side of Indianapolis that had died. It was a 40-year-old church that had four members. Okay. And, uh, four, did yeah. that include you? Uh, no, that, that does not include us. As a matter of fact, the day we joined, it was uh, my new wife, Kathy, and yep. I and our four kids. We increased the uh, church roles by 150%. There are six of us, so... So uh, that's church growth, huh? <laughs> and, and, and as a Baptist in background, I, I hope you got right uh, voting rights for your children. Yes, yeah, we we were real careful about that. Yes, <laughs> uh, okay. no doubt. And, but, and uh, uh, what unfolded there? Uh, God performed a resurrection of that old church. It was exciting to watch it happen, and uh, we grew up to about two hundred and twenty in worship and. Uh, uh, 85% of the people who were part of the church were either uh, unsaved or unchurched. Mm. And uh, so it was it was an exciting time of ministry. Nine years into the program, for the first time, we had, it was good. It was easy. We had uh, plenty of leaders. We had plenty of money, uh, people coming. And uh, uh, God just very clearly directed me that I have a new assignment for you and uh, called me to start a church in Fishers, Indiana, which is a uh, suburb of Indianapolis, a bedroom community, really, and had exploded in growth. And uh, uh, he just clearly led me. That's where we're supposed to go. Mm-hmm. So uh, in uh, 2000, we started a, a church and uh, went through the formation stages and uh, launched in uh, 2001 and 2002. And um, we actually moved from a church in Indianapolis where we were meeting momentarily, you know, temporarily to renting a building in Fishers. And uh, our rent was $11,000 a month. We had the big screens and the uh, the uh, worship band and, you know, listening to the way you do church growth. Hmm. And uh, uh, what realized we did was we actually planted a worship service rather than a church, but uh, okay. uh, that, I didn't know any other way to do it, and uh, we did that for a, a few years, and then in 2006, a good friend of mine who had planted a church at the same time uh, that I did, uh, um, we merged together, the mm-hmm. two of us. At the time, they had about 300 in worship. We had about 200 in worship. We merged them together, had 500 in worship in 2006. And between 2006 and 2007, or 2011, five years, mm-hmm. we grew to uh, 1,500 in worship. Over the 10-year period from 2001 to 2011, we baptized 1,000 people, and we 
launched or helped launch, mm. assisted the planting of two churches. Mm. So uh, feeling pretty good. And, you know, yeah. and, and, yeah. wow, look at that. You've reached the pinnacle. Yeah, there you go. Mm. And, uh, you know, we had we had dozens of staff people and the total investment of that work was in the neighborhood of 20,000 or $20 million. Mm. And uh, between uh, capital campaigns and buildings and uh, then all the regular, you know, funding, yeah. uh, about $20 million. Uh, it was about that time that I was introduced to the book T4T. Okay. And I opened the first chapter, Wrecked Me, <laughs> because it gives the uh, story of uh, what Ying Kai did. And uh, in exactly the same 10 years, from 2001 to 2011, he uh, began a movement hmm. that planted 158,000 churches and baptized 1.7 million. And it, it hit me how unbelievably inefficient and hmm. ineffective the way I had been doing church was if our real objective is to be on mission with the Lord and obey the Great Commission. And uh, it was a it was a true <laughs> kind of transforming uh, experience. So, well, some some did, people need to sort of crash before God gets their attention. Amen. But you'd actually achieved everything, no doubt, that you'd hoped to, and maybe more. Sure. Yes. And. Um, and so what, what, how did you reconcile these two things being on, 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 on the pinnacle of the, you know, of a large successful church, church planning church, mm-hmm. and yet sure. you've read this chapter and you've been ruined. What, what did you do with that? Right, right. <laughs> um, I determined that, um, I had no desire anymore for building a business a 501c3 in our country, which is a not-for-profit mm. corporation, um, that that uh, I'm just way too old to play church. And if I wanted to build a business, I'd build a business. I was in the business world for 20 years. Mm. I want to see people come to Christ in such numbers that it transforms our community, that we see um, so many people coming to Christ that it has an impact on our neighborhoods and schools and uh, divorce rate and child abuse and addictions and so on. And I believe God can do that if, if, if his people will be effective in doing what he called us to do, that is making disciples. And uh, so I, I left that church with the intention of starting a new church like this, <laughs> A church that is all about making disciples who make disciples. And uh, so in November of 2011, mm-hmm. we uh, launched our uh, new work. We called it Onward Church and uh, had a brother, uh, one of our, one of our uh, uh, folks was telling someone recently, he said, well, I go to, I go to this church. It's called uh, Onward Church. And he said, well, it's not really a church. It's more of a movement. And that just blessed me. It's like, well, that's exactly what I want. I don't want to try to control this. I don't want, I do not care how many people show up on Sunday morning. I care about whether or not we're being effective in seeing people come to Christ and being discipled and getting them immediately on mission to make disciples themselves. And uh, that's what we've been about. So... And it's what, been a, what, what does that what does that look like, Gary? Well, uh, the the first thing we did was we incorporated the three thirds process that uh, uh, is talked about in the T four T book mm. uh, into the Sunday morning experience. Um, we did a lot of uh, seeding this by defining what church is and what it's not. And um, we are very careful. We even tease ourselves when we use terminology like um, I'm going to church. Mm. We, we, I know that's minor. It's just trivial. But it, it tells the idea 
that people with a shared culture have to have a shared vocabulary mm. that they understand what that means. And so we don't talk about going to church. We talk about being the church mm. and that on Sunday morning, we're, this isn't church. This is the church being the church gathering for worship and mm. celebration for the Lord. And uh, so that's been that, you know, we, we did some of that seeing uh, for a couple of months, getting people prepared. And then in January of 2012, um, really at the recommendation of Ying Kai, we had a friend who was with him uh, while he was in the States and mm-hmm. said, here's what we're thinking. What would you recommend? And he said, I would have Gary train as many as he could train. So um, we divided into eight small groups of about 25 people each. And um, we met every other week. And all of those met in my basement, all of the small groups. Mm. God bless my wife, Kathy. She has the gift of hospitality, no doubt. And uh, uh, we met in my basement. And we had developed eight short-term discipleship lessons to teach people how to make disciples who make disciples. Mm. Um, we we used the outlines that... Um, uh, Ying Kai had provided and Steve Smith and some that are available. And then the one thing he said is you have to contextualize, mm. culturalize your lessons. And so we uh, did those lessons. Uh, we picked eight just from a background experience with uh, small groups that it takes about eight meetings together before relational capital happens and people mm. begin to connect. So, uh, we did that very intense training, three thirds method, um, you know, all seven steps ending with, uh, fish and follow, uh, someone to tell and something to obey every time and then held them uh, accountable. So between Jan- January and June, we trained, uh, over 200 people hmm. in disciple making. Okay. And then, How, yeah. what sort of percentage of the whole church is that just about everybody or? Yes, that, that is, uh, virtually everyone yeah. was, was engaged. Yes. Mm. And, uh, you know, there were a few that weren't and some who we trained who had no intention of being a part of, uh, our Sunday morning worship, mm. which I could care less. I don't, mm. don't care about that. And, uh, I'm, I'm tired of, measuring my effectiveness as a pastor with the ABCs, you know, attendance, buildings, and cash, mm. and say, Lord, surely the only thing that that matters to your heart is whether people are coming to know you and growing up in the faith. So um, we tried to uh, stay away from that anyway. Still so, get so you, you trained every, well, and... Everybody who was willing to learn, and that was the yes. majority of people, mm-hmm. uh, eight-week blocks for each group. And mm-hmm. so I imagine uh, and they every second week. Right. So on a number of nights a week, uh, you're, you're, you're training your people in groups of about 25. Yes. 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 And uh, by God's <laughs> providence, we have a, a large uh, – finished basement mm. and uh we could fit that many people in our basement we had the kids upstairs with childcare mm. and downstairs uh, two hours from 6 to 8 p.m we uh we cranked it so um we used that again three-thirds practicing just in a nutshell things. uh by the way gary i'll i'll um uh link some resources for people where mm-hmm. they can find out more if they haven't yet learned about T for T and some of the other things that you've mentioned. But just in a nutshell, what's three thirds? Okay. Um, what uh, Ying developed was to make sure that you divide however much time you have for your time together in discipleship. You divide that into three parts. The first third is looking back, and uh, it includes four pieces. Pastoral care, where you see how are you doing, what's going on in your life. We do that by asking them to give us, in bullet form, a highlight and a challenge. And uh, the challenge becomes a prayer request for everyone. And uh, so that, and then, then the second part is worship. We do that by, 
We might sing a song. We might play a song. We might read a psalm. Uh, helping people understand there's other ways to worship besides a rock band. Hmm. Even though I love that music, my son is one of those guys. But, uh, 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 you know, so teaching them how to worship. Then we do accountability. Last week you said this is what you would obey and this is who you would tell. How did that go? And uh, we found that that little piece, which, of course, Christians know accountability. We've heard that forever. But when you actually look someone in the eye and ask mm. them, did you obey what you said you were going to obey? Um, that's not particularly attractive in the attractional church model. I want to tell you that uh, freaks people out pretty much, even though it's done in love and we're all here together. And yeah. this is an opportunity to learn. We're not here to judge. We're here to say, are we doing what we said we would do? Mm. And um, the way we say it is that for too long, it has been a, a knowledge-based discipleship, and we have to convert that to an obedience-based discipleship. And uh, that's a different way of thinking on everything you do. That is a huge change in the paradigm of how a pastor thinks. Rather than pushing information at people and hoping they catch it, mm. you have to help them learn to obey. And it's a completely different way of thinking, and it? It takes a while. It took me a while. I'm slow, probably, yeah. to get my head around that. So you have that piece. And then the uh, final piece is vision casting, where you say, remember what we're doing, and here's why we're doing it, a story or something that tells them that. That's the first third. Hmm. The middle third is the actual lesson. Yeah. And then the final third of your time. So if you have an hour and a half, you have a half an hour in each of those. The hmm. final third is for them to work through uh, something to obey and someone to tell and to practice the lesson with someone else. So now you teach them. So all the time we're teaching from the advantage, not let me teach you. It's let me teach you how to teach someone else. Mm. Hence the name training for trainers. Mm. And uh, so everything you do is now when you teach someone, mm. here's what you say. Don't forget to mention this. You might draw them out and ask them this question. You're constantly teaching from that vantage point, assuming they're going to teach someone else. And so the final third is looking onward, we call it. That's, um, <laughs> they call it looking ahead. We yeah. call it looking onward. So looking back, looking up, and looking ahead, or looking onward, we call it. So. Now, what's interesting to me, Gary, is you've spent, the least amount of time talking about the lesson. You've spent most of the time talking about the learning process. Yes. Does that, does that reflect uh, priorities and, and the flavor of this? Yes. I think one of the hardest things for a pastor to get his heart around, I mean, you can get your head around it maybe, but your heart, is if whatever part gets cut in time, it has to be the lesson. You have to make sure you do that first third and make sure you get to the third third where they practice and uh, come up, you know, fish and follow. And uh, so sh shortening that lesson, there's been many times I've said, um, all right, we'll, we're running a little short of time here. So you can see the rest of this information. Now let's get on to the, yeah. the third third. Okay. And, uh, you know, a pastor is like, no, you have to, un I've, I've got this dump truck full of information. I have to dump the whole load, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, it's, it's all right. You watch what people do. If you want them to obey, then make sure you get them to practice. And, and typically in that middle third where you, you are helping people learn a, a new lesson, uh, in, in, when you're training people to make disciples down there in your basement, uh -huh. what sort of things are you doing in that middle third? Um, each of the lessons has a particular topic. We start by teaching them how to uh, um, share their faith story in less than two minutes. We do that in a way that we used to prepare people for sharing their story in baptism and something that might be helpful. Hmm. Steve, as we say, there's three parts to your faith story, your life before Christ, when you came to Christ, and then your life since coming to Christ. Everybody knows that. That's kind of Paul's pattern and in Acts 26, when he shares his story with uh, King Agrippa. Hmm. But 
but the difference that we've helped people, we ask them, in a word, describe your life before Christ. Fearful, confused, mm-hmm. lost, they might say. Mm. All right, now write two or three sentences that explains what you mean by that. Mm-hmm. Second part, tell me how you came to Christ when, just a couple of the two or three sentences on that. And then the third part, what has your life been like since coming to Christ? Describe your life in one word since having come to Christ. Mm-hmm. Joyful. I have purpose. Um, uh, uh, peace, whatever they might say. Now write two or three sentences about that. And that concept of in a word gets it away from all the biographical, historical uh, kinds of things and gets to the heart of my life used to be like this. I came to Christ and now here's how it is. And people can resonate. If you say I was uh, selfish, for instance, that was my word, by the way, before coming to Christ and uh, selfish. Uh, well, what do you mean by that? Well, there's a lot of people like, oh, that's me. I'm kind of like that. It's all about me and my plans. And I haven't really even considered God's plan and my plan. And then I came to Christ and with a businessman who shared Jesus with me at a restaurant, breakfast uh, uh, restaurant. And uh, uh, after arguing with him, I said, yes, uh, I want Christ in my life. And uh, since that time, my life has been filled with God's plan and God's purpose. And his plan is so much better than my plan could ever be. And I have fulfillment and peace like I've never had before. And so that's, you know, that's the way I share mine. So, so in, that in idea. That two minutes, it's, it's not mm-hmm. like you've told your whole life story. No. You, you've just captured a, a, a couple of images of this is the difference Jesus has made. Amen. And you're not trying to share the gospel Mm. in that piece. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes you include the whole gospel message yeah. in your testimony, and that, then that takes 20 minutes, 30 minutes, you know. Mm. You're just trying to say, Jesus has made this difference in my life. Okay. And uh, then we're, yeah, go ahead. Well, well, so that's one of the skills that you're down in the basement. I, I yes, like this yes. idea that 25 yes. people down there, kids upstairs. Uh-huh. Right. Um, and uh, so... Uh, you're teaching them how to share their story. What mm-hmm. just treat up some of the other things yeah. in the, in the course? Well, we uh, we share um, we we teach them to share the gospel using the bridge, mm-hmm. and the bridge was developed, I think, by navigators. It's one verse evangelism, uh, Romans six twenty three, and we thought of a lot of ways of teaching people to share the gospel. We love creation to Christ. It's wonderful. We teach them that as well. But the way. And here's why we we landed on that Mm. with one verse and a picture that no one will ever forget. Mm. We're not only sharing the gospel, and I believe a a a biblically accurate way, but we're also that is exceedingly transferable, teachable. Once you've shared that one verse and the story with the picture. You, uh, a person can teach a new disciple how to share the gospel uh, very simply, very quickly. So that's why we've used that as our means of, of sharing the gospel. Um, I got an email on uh, Saturday night this past week from uh, one of our, our uh, folks. And um, she said her son, Ben, who's a sixth grader, uh, had a young boy in the neighborhood that was talking about how he believed that when you die, you go to heaven and you come back as a cow or something. And Ben said, okay, it's time. And Ben, by the way, all of our students, we took them through our T4T training first. They have led our congregation, our middle school, high school mm-hmm. students. We ha- They have led our congregation in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Ben says, all right, I'm going to share with him. So he goes into the house and he gets some uh, seaweed that his dad had just brought back from Korea. And with these, the seaweed, he spelled the word hell. (laughs) Then he got some uh, candy and he spelled the word God. And he took some Pringle potato chips and made a bridge. And he told him, taste the seaweed. This is a seven-year-old boy. 
And he said, what does that taste like? He said, oh, it's terrible. He said, well, that's because hell is terrible. And But God wants a relationship with us. And Jesus is like the Pringles leading to the candy of our relationship with God. And that seven-year-old boy prayed and trusted Christ and Ben then led him in a Bible study for the rest of the time. And I thought, what, how awesome that is when we've got our, our 12-year-olds that can share the gospel in incredibly relevant and effective ways because they are equipped mm. to be able to do that and then know exactly how to lead him in a Bible study. And uh, So uh, do you also teach, um, when you train people, you're also teaching them how to do Bible study? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the The... Fourth lesson is how to study the Bible. Think of a new Christian. They need to be fed. So they've trusted in Christ. They've been baptized. And so lesson four is how to, um, how to, uh, study the Bible. And we teach four inductive Bible study methods. Mm-hmm. We teach, we call it the, the star method. It's actually known as the Swedish method mm-hmm. where you put a star by anything you observe in the text. Okay. You put a question mark by anything you have a question about or that is confusing. And you put an arrow by anything you think applies to you. And then you have the leader lead. Everyone shares their stars, their observations. Then, after all the observations have been shared in the group, then you discuss the questions and we teach, a, we just drill and drill. You are not allowed to answer a question unless you know the answer from Scripture. So you have to answer the question with Scripture, or it's perfectly okay to say, that's a great question, I don't know. Let's do some research, and we'll talk about it next time. And then the arrow is something that you think applies to you, and we teach them to help the folks craft an I will statement Mm -hmm. that... uh, is we, we coined this word, I don't know, maybe someone else, but we use the word, your I will statement has to be obeyable. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to obey it. So after they share their I will statement, the rest of the group, they vote thumbs up or thumbs mm-hmm. down okay. on whether the group thinks that is obeyable. Because they'll say things like, uh, I've decided I'm going to love my wife more. Mm-hmm. And everybody will go, no, thumbs down. That's, you know, how do you know a week from now whether you've done that? Mm. So they'll craft something like, I will love my wife more by helping make sure I get the kids in bed for her every evening. Or I'm going to clean up the dishes after dinner every night. Mm. Uh, Something that is obeyable, that's specific. And someone could ask them next time, how did it go cleaning the dishes every night? Exactly. And yeah, and the leader records the I will statements. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, so they know next time you're going to be asked, you said you would, how did that go? You know? And, uh, well, I, I, I cleaned the dishes one night and I thought about it a couple other nights. You know, it's like, well, come on, let's do better, you know, yeah. next week or however and, you And do um, they actually, uh, I wasn't sure with the star, are they sitting mm-hmm. there with a Bible and, and they've yes. got a little star or do they draw a star or? Yeah, they draw a star yeah. on, on the Bible if yeah. they don't mind or yeah. they can have a sheet of paper and mm. note. And then they'll say, well, I put a star by verse four. Mm. It's like, mm. well, that isn't helpful. You know, <laughs> what did you mean by that? Mm. Well, it said this and here's what I thought of when it said, and I just thought that was interesting or mm. I noticed that that was, you know, that way. So, uh, w- again, it's called the Swedish method Bible study, and people know about yeah. that. You can get it. But we call it the star method. Hmm. Um, in the States, Swedish and Bible study don't go together in our yeah. culture. That's probably not fair at all to our brothers in Sweden, yeah. but that's just <laughs> – so we call it the star method. Yeah. Then we teach the sword method. You, okay. you familiar with that one? Yes. Where, um, you know, you're holding a Roman sword. It points up to God. So the first question you ask is, what does this passage say about God? You're holding the sword. Second question, what does it say about me or about people? Then one side is, is there a sin to avoid? It's a double-edged sword. Is there a promise to claim is the fourth question. And then finally, you do something with the sword. So as a result of this passage, what am I going to do? And then they write an I will statement. 
Mm. Um, so we use that method. So um, we teach, again, I don't want to go through all them, but we have four different inductive yeah. and study why, methods. And why do you teach four methods rather than just stick with one? Yes, all of the, sometimes, uh, some passages, the sword method, for instance, works exceedingly well, mm. and the star method, it's a little awkward. Yeah. Um, uh, other times, the star method just creates the most amazing Bible study. So we just, it's, it's like, um, when the plumber comes into your house, he has more than one tool in his tool yeah. belt. Yeah. And, uh, we want to make sure that, that the people are equipped with a variety of tools. Yes. Um, we do the three column method is another method where you, you take your piece of paper, you divide it into three columns. Hmm. And the first column, you copy the passage word for word. Mm-hmm. You write it word for word. In the middle column, you write that, rewrite it in your own words. You paraphrase. You say it in your own words. And in the third column, you ask two questions. What does it say about God? What does it say about me? Hmm. But that method, for instance, only works on shorter yeah. passages. Yeah. Uh, for instance, we always use that. That's a perfect method to use to have people discover the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And if you'll have them, you know, that's a shorter passage you can do. Otherwise, it takes forever to write it down. So, so but, um, um, with the, the commonality, though, is um, it's the, the Bible studies are participative. So everyone's involved. Okay. There's some self-discovery, and there's accountability. Yes, yes. For obedience. And uh, and what's so great about teaching the methods is we have honestly taught people how to fish mm. rather than giving them a fish. Um, in, in our church, I could walk up to any number of people, I mean, 100, mm. <laughs> 200, and say... Um, I would like for you right this minute to lead these six people in the star method of John chapter four. Hmm. And with absolutely no preparation, they could do that. Yes. And it would go well. Yes. Oh, it'd be a great study. Absolutely. Just employing the methods they've been taught. Yeah. And of course, sometimes people share things that are, you know, out of line and, Hmm. but, by the way, that happens in every Bible study. Yeah. The Bible studies I taught, people came up with stuff that wasn't right. You know, it's like, it's all right. We trust the Holy Spirit and God's word. And then by employing the methods correctly, you will correct because you're constantly drawing people back to the text to give the answers hmm. rather than the expert having the answer. And uh, that's just been an exciting thing to watch that happen. And um, Gary... Uh just in terms of just rounding off this part with getting a feel for how you're training, uh, can people access, get a, you know, uh, sometimes people, you know, prefer not to give out all the materials unless they're able to train people properly in them. Do you make the materials available? Yes, I do. I, you know, we, we want them available. Obviously, what we've done is we've taken the eight lessons mm. and, uh, my, my, uh, right hand man, uh, Ed Watson is a, um, a lifelong teacher, educator, principal. Uh, he coached, uh, sports and, uh, even taught in college. And, uh, Ed is, um, uh, tremendous as thinking like a teacher. So every one of the eight lessons have a step-by-step lesson plan that literally open the book and follow the instructions and you will have a great, uh, you could, you could teach someone the lesson. What we found, by the way, and this kind of comical is that the ladies say, this is amazing. It works so great. I just followed the instructions and it was awesome. We give the guys the same material and they say, I don't know how to do this. I'm not sure what to do. And it's, it, I tell them, just would you, one time, would you just read the instructions? <laughs> Us guys think we can do it without <laughs> reading the instructions. And they're right there. Just read the instructions yeah. and watch what happens. And uh, uh, okay, so we have so the we, lesson we can, plan uh, laid out step by step. On, on the blog, we can post a link to um, 
where uh, people can go and have a look at the lessons. Sure, sure. Great. Absolutely. That's, that's excellent. Yeah, it's, you know, we, there aren't any original ideas. It's just mm. how we mm. tried to culturalize. Um, Ying Kai says that one of the essential lessons is um, persecution. And in America, I'm not, I can't bring myself to use the word mm. persecution yeah. in suburbia America. Mm. Uh, but what I have learned is that you have to be willing to pay a price. Yes. And we've found that disciple-making is not something you can add Mm. to your already busy schedule. You have to change the way you do life to include time for disciple-making. And that is a cost that Mm. people have to honestly examine. Count the cost. And uh, that seems trite when you're talking about people around the world whose cost is literally giving the lives away. But the truth is, if we're not willing to count the cost, we won't make disciples. And the cost in America, in, in uh, where we live, is mm. not persecution by any yes. means, but rather the sacrifice of mm. giving up the time to actually engage in what God's asking you to do. Mm. Gary, um, just paint a picture for us. In you know, we've we'll, we'll sort of spent some time on the training. Mm-hmm. What's what's been the fruit of the training? Sure. Well, uh, so a year ago, right now, we we uh, uh, finished that first round of training. Since then, obviously, we've continued to train. Mm. I, I think maybe we've trained, crowding in on three hundred people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I would say me. You know, we uh, mm. Ed and I and and our team, <coughs> and then our folks have launch out uh, groups from that. So our first generation, after we trained those people, um, they formed 50 groups. And they were going to take people in discovery Bible studies through the Gospel of Mark. Hmm. Some of those groups, probably a third of the groups, were them taking other Christians through Hmm. disciple-making, the short-term discipleship lessons. But a lot of them were discovery Bible studies with neighbors and friends and so on. Uh, and to take them through an eight lesson of the book of Mark, through the gospel of Mark in eight segments. Okay. And uh, so, again, that eight is it works for us in our context, our cultural context. Uh, shorter than that, you don't seem to get enough done. And longer mm. than that, people are hesitant to make a commitment. Mm. So what we found is that we hadn't drilled enough the cost. And a lot of those groups that were, that they promised, that they planned, that they started kind of disintegrated in last summer. So, um, we, we, uh, got through the fall, continued encouraging the groups that were started and so on. And by, uh, this January, we started a, a new series. And what we did was we said, we know by statistical data that people are interested in knowing and understanding the Bible, what the Bible has to say. Lost people, a huge majority of them, are interested in studying the Bible and would study the Bible if a friend would invite them. Mm. So uh, we took that idea. We took the eight idea, all the inductive Bible study methods, and we chose four chapters from the Old Testament and four chapters from the New Testament to give people an overview of the entire Bible. Then each week I would write about two paragraphs that we told the leaders, just read these two paragraphs to your people to set the context Mm -hmm. for that chapter you're going to study that day. And uh, so they would read the Introduction, I mean, literally a minute or two, uh, introduction. Then, so, the way to begin is with Genesis chapter 3. So, the chapters we chose were Genesis 3, Exodus 20, which is the Ten Commandments, Psalm 103, which is David Mm -hmm. describing the character and nature of God. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the Old Testament people think they have this idea that the God of the Old Testament is cranky Mm -hmm. and angry. Mm -hmm. And then he got nice in the New Testament. And David describes the character of God and how 
kind and compassionate mm. and loving and, and how he delights in forgiving. And uh, so that's Psalm 103. And then I think to summarize all the prophets, Isaiah 53. Mm. So those were the four Old Testament mm. chapters. The New Testament, we did John 1, Matthew, the end of 27 and all of 28. So we get the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the Great Commission. Mm-hmm. As the church launched, then this guy by the name of Paul came along, wrote half of the New Testament approximately, and maybe the greatest of his works is uh, Romans chapter 8 and how you live in victory in the power of the Holy Spirit. The victorious Christian life is found in Romans chapter 8. And then to culminate the end, we had him read Revelation 20. And you have the the establishment of Christ's kingdom, and then, importantly, end the eight weeks with the great white throne judgment. So, you know, after these eight weeks together studying the Bible— um, you know, all the way along, they've been sharing the gospel because they've been equipped. But mm. if not before, surely by now you're ready to put your faith in Christ. That was kind of the thinking. People are interested in end times. We didn't get into all the detail. And, yeah. you know, Jesus is coming back and then he's going to judge the world. That's the point. And um, so what we found that exploded with interest. And we have right now, we can't. I can't count them all. I don't know. It's just too hard because we have third and even fourth generation groups that have started from this through the Bible. And um, we have something over 100 groups. We estimate we have about 500 people in Bible studies from that. And over half the people are approximately half. Again, these are being as fair as we can. Mm-hmm. Yes. With the numbers, because I don't want to fool myself. Hmm. That's one of the things I've asked our leaders to keep us accountable, that we're not pretending hmm. things are happening if they're not. But we estimate uh, around half of the people in the Bible studies are lost. So it's been hmm. tremendous leverage and traction from that idea. And honestly, it was like a whole bunch of, you know, God leading. and We didn't have a clue what we're doing. We're just making it up as we go along. And this has really captured people's attention. The, our folks feel competent in being able to lead these studies effectively. And the, the folks are interested in getting an overview of the Bible. Because otherwise, how would you do that? I mean, you know, uh, how do you, what do you invite someone into Bible study in the next 322 weeks? You, you study from Genesis to yeah. Revelation. How do you do that? And so we've done it in a way they can, kind of bite size where they can figure out how to do that. So, And and again, Gary, we, we can provide a link where people could have mm-hmm. a look at that process. Absolutely. Yes. Excellent. Yeah. We're glad to share whatever is helpful and, and uh, try to give credit where, mm. where, mm. Uh, you know, where we can, uh, we didn't invent any of these methods. Mm. We didn't sure didn't invent yeah. any of the scriptures, but, uh, uh, however we can be helpful in, uh, we, we've got to change the culture of come to go. Mm. We have to, we have to change that. And I, I know you, you know, I'm preaching to the choir, but mm. um, inviting people to come is, is incredibly inefficient. Um, my son-in-law began, he, he is getting his doctorate at uh, Southern Seminary right now. And uh, he's he's uh, part time with us uh, doing leadership training and development. And uh, he did some research and found out that by the middle second century A.D., the division between clergy and laity was beginning to emerge where the clergy did the ministry and the laity kind of show up and applaud and give so he can do the ministry. And that was happening by mid second century. So we have hundreds of years of tradition doing church the way we're doing it. And uh, I just think we have to find a way of being more effective, getting and enabling the church to be the church. And so, uh, one so of the Gary, yeah, right, right now, you've you and, and the others on the team have 
you say you you've got about one hundred groups meeting, mm-hmm. and and about five hundred people, and roughly half of those people uh, uh, aren't followers of Christ. They're not saved. Yes, right. And they're right. in Discovery Bible Study. Well, what's what's going to so as as they this must be going on as we speak, but as they progress yes. through the studies, what's happening? Are, are people coming to know Christ? Yes, yes, they are. And again, one of the things that I've struggled with is, um, you know, um, I, I don't know if that was a cultural thing or just a gifting thing, but uh, Ying was so good at meticulously keeping records, and we're trying. I mean, Ed Watson is a record-keeping guy, but it is in American culture, I don't know. It's just really hard mm. to get the actual data, but we are seeing people mm. come to Christ. And so we ask them for, um, who have you baptized? Yeah. Which, by the way, is a whole nother issue. Um, it, it was a revelation to me. I'd never thought of this mm. before, that the Great Commission is more a command for all Christians to be baptizers mm then it is a command to be baptized. Mm. Yeah. It's really not a command mm. to be baptized. Mm. It's a command to be a baptizer. Yes. Of course, you're to be baptized. Mm. But uh, so we have unleashed people to baptize, mm. remembering that you're not baptizing people to free agency Christianity, uh, but that they are connected to a local body of believers. And um, that local body can be in... Um, you know, they can gather on Sunday with us or they can be in any group where they're doing the nine key functions of the church that we find in Acts chapter uh, two. And um, so anyway, that, you know, we're, we're seeing baptism. Last year we had 60 baptisms our first year. And uh, this year we've got a good start. I don't, I don't know the numbers, honestly, right now, but um, this summer I'll let you know. But my thought is we've if we do not see exponential growth in actual baptisms, then I, I believe that's got to be a way that we consider whether or not we're doing what we say we're doing, you know? So uh, stay tuned. I'll let you know. But okay. we are seeing people get yeah. baptized. And by the way, we don't have a bapti- baptistry, mm-hmm. nor do we ever plan on having a building. Mm-hmm. That's just my heart, yeah. is that I can get through the rest of my ministry without ever having a building. So... Uh, so yeah. people are giving their lives to Christ. That's happening mm-hmm. in the groups. Mm-hmm. Then in, in, I guess, the context of the group, they're finding a way to get baptized. Yes. What's the discipleship plan beyond beyond conversion, baptism? Yes. Once a person comes to Christ, then it's the one who was there when he or she trusted Christ. It's their responsibility to take that new believer through the eight short-term discipleship lessons. So immediately, be, we, we drill this. When someone comes to Christ, before you leave, there's several things that you have to spend time with them. Um, first of all, you have to teach them their own faith story. And a five-minute-old Christian has a faith mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. What was your life like? How would you describe it a half an hour ago? What did you do? And how do you feel now? Mm-hmm. And, there's your faith story. Yeah. Then, all right, we, I just shared the bridge with you. I want you to be to share it back with me. Explain it to me. Mm. And then I need to talk to you about who, now who are you going to tell? And, uh, you know, my brother, I'm going to call him on the way home. I'm going to go home and tell my mom, I, you know, whatever it is. So who are you going to tell? And then I need to talk to you about baptism. And when you start talking about baptism, is not in, you know, we, we used to have, you know, we'd have baptisms in front of, you know, we had three services, but we'd have maybe eight or 900 in the biggest service Hmm. and someone's getting baptized. And the truth is they know exactly five people in that auditorium that morning. You know, Hmm. that's your oikos. That's who people got baptized in front of in Acts chapter two. And so who's your oikos? Let's go. Let's go. You know, if you start saying baptism and they're thinking in a church, in a baptistry, in front of a whole bunch of people, it freaks them out. When you say, would you be baptized in your home? 
yeah, or let's go down to the city pool or mm-hmm. let's go to that lake or hot tub in someone's backyard. And we have pictures of people baptized in every one of those places, lakes and private pools mm-hmm. and public pools and lots of hot tubs and even bathtubs. And, um, you know, where you fill it as best you can. The truth is in our bathtub, bathtubs, your knees are out of the water when your head's under. So <laughs> for those who are legalistic, that probably isn't good enough. But They're just going to have to re-baptize them. <laughs> amen. They can, they can deal, deal with that one. It's pretty cool. So, uh, but then the, the person continues on in the group, in a discipleship yes. group. Yes. And you're saying some of these groups have got three or four generations. So yes. the group's got great-great-grandchildren <laughs> of groups they've started. Yes, they do. And so someone started a group and they're training them. So we, you know, it, it's obviously the objective is for each leader to stay in touch with four generations. And that's Second Timothy 2.2. 2. Mm-hmm. Paul to Timothy to faithful men who will train others. And so um, that's the objective. So I'm trying to stay somewhat in touch, at least have... Um, availability to that fourth generation and um uh but you want them connected to the person who is discipling them but here we're here as as um help or you know what i get a lot and our folks get are bible questions hey in bible study we had this question can you help me with this give me some direction we'll look up this passage look at that passage here's a resource kind of thing that we're able to help with that and um uh, so yeah, we do have, you know, the generations of groups. Now the next dream is that, that those will become generations of churches and not just groups. Mm. And, uh, you know, we, we started, we wanted generations of Christians. We started seeing that happen. Then we want generations of groups. Now we want to see generations of churches. So we are right now, um, launching our first church that's, um, officially a church. Uh, mm. Bill Smith said one of the keys to church formation is name it and claim it. Mm. Once they yeah. name it as a church, the people begin to own that. Mm. Now, I'm not an expert on that, Steve. You are, but I, I just, I don't know what else to do. And so listen to my mentors and say, I, all right. So I, I'm just the guy who listens to Bill Smith and agrees. Yeah, with there you go. <laughs> there you go. Bill but, knows uh, his stuff. He sure does. And so uh, we have the church at Inslee Place. which is one of our biggest neighborhoods in Fishers. And that church uh, planted pregnant because the leaders who will launch the next generation church in that neighborhood, by the way, uh, they live in that neighborhood. They're part of this initial church plant. They were navigators uh, trained. They went to Laos as short-term missionaries came back and are looking to start a church, but they said, I don't know how to do this. So they're learning how to do it. And uh, in this church, there's about 12 Christians and 40 lost people who uh, attend at different times. They're not there every week, but uh, then they're all neighbors of this leader who's lived in that neighborhood for years, uh, has a great secular job and, uh, um, just knows his neighbors, cares about his neighbors, invites them over, and it's exciting to see that happening. And uh, so we are working through um, what should the bylaws look like in a church like that in America. Um, I believe that two pieces from our vantage point that need to be included in this process. One is that these churches need to be formed as not-for-profit corporations so that the giving is tax deductible. And that's something that just as part of our American church culture, Mm -hmm. uh, your gifts to the church are tax deductible. And uh, so we need to be able to provide that. That's not issues other places, I know, but I think it is in America. So we're working through how simple can we write the bylaws that guide the operation of the church without becoming cumbersome and intimidating. So, so Gary, you've got, I think... From what you're telling me, your groups, your discipleship groups are functioning as church. Mm-hmm. Um, they might even refer to them, but, but they're also part of a wider uh, entity that is legally recognized as a church. Is that right? <coughs> well, our intention would be 
each of the house churches. I know um, I've been taught by some of the missiologists mm. that when you have a group going, you 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 designate that with a dashed line, mm-hmm. circle. And as you begin to do more and more of the functions of the church, that there's a point where you make the dashed line a solid line, and that's when it becomes a church. Mm. Now, I know that's some of that is just getting our folks to think from a new paradigm. Mm. But um, when you do that, that's when we're saying that house church mm. will use that. Well, I don't mean that in a technical sense. I mean it more in a general sense. That house church, we're helping them um, become a registered corporation, not-for-profit corporation, operating as a church. And then uh, still a part of the wider church network. And the reason we came to that conclusion is we could operate under our umbrella, onward umbrella. But we realized that if this is really going to be exponential, Hmm. the managing of the funds would become overwhelming. You'd have all these separate accounts with, you know, offerings every week and and it's like, no, the church should take care of that. So let's do that. And someone says, well, there'll be dozens or hundreds of these little house churches formed as 501c3s. I said, there are already hundreds, even thousands of little churches all over our state that have five, ten members, hmm. old churches that have died. What difference does it make? You know, it keeps uh, our bureaucrats busy. That's what they're supposed to do, you know, our or uh, gives them jobs to do. I mean, it's legal what we're doing. The issue is we want to find out how to do that the best. So we're working through that right now. That's the fourth field, the the four fields. And the fourth field is church formation. And in the States, that's been something that we've, I've, I've struggled getting um, good input on that. It's just, but it's something that I think is, as I've prayed about that and thought about it and we discussed it, I just think that's going to be critical that we can help these churches form into churches. Um, but do you also envisage yet. that some of the groups could, you know, have those nine functions of a church but remain under the umbrella of, uh, you know, the yes. the larger church that, that yes, you've got? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's it's a both and, not okay. an either or. Yes. Yeah. So, and for those that do that, you're saying some of them will be meeting as groups in the community, but they're also free to participate in public, in in a larger public worship. You're still running that? Yes, absolutely. And what our intention is that as these groups birth out and churches birth out, that by relationship, we will help them find places to meet on Sunday morning in numbers around 150. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is, is that there are dozens of places in our community that a group of 150 people can meet and rent week to week mm. at, at very inexpensive costs. Hotels have that, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, uh, meeting rooms, banquet facilities, all kinds of rooms. One of the things we're trying to do is discourage these groups from meeting in church buildings. And the reason is, is if you meet in a church building, you're still saying, well, you do need a church building. Hmm. And I know that's just kind of a personal thing, but uh, I I want them to find places to meet um, apartment clubhouses. There's, there's just lots of places where you can meet at 150. When you start getting above that, 200, 250, you reduce substantially the number of places you can meet. And uh, so if we could keep these association, these networks of churches, that every 150 people or so, we can find a place for them to celebrate on Sunday so that we're not taking that away. I think sometimes you're throwing out the the baby with the bathwater by saying just your house group is the only thing in America. We're allowed to gather in bigger numbers. That's not an issue like it is in some other places of the world. So, (coughs) excuse me. 
So we're we're hoping to gather in those bigger groups too. But as as we've talked, um, in one sense, uh, I guess it's natural that we go to these issues because you you you're like you say you're both and guy. But what I've heard is what's really driving this whole thing is not not the legal thing or how big the church should be or it's really we want the gospel we want to train people to get out there and share the gospel make disciples form groups that can become church mm-hmm. whatever their legal status has got to be sorted mm-hmm. out yeah and sure then absolutely all of and that life is bubbling away now um yeah. you've you've got multiple groups out there multiple generations of groups uh uh, people who aren't saved, discovering Christ, getting baptized. Yes. And so that's that's what's motivating and driving this thing. Right. But at the same time, you're trying to think strategically, okay, how can the legal side, mm-hmm. the organizational side, the building side, how can that all just catch up and facilitate this? Right. Um, right. And I, I, what I like is it's been – gospel and discipleship that's created those questions normally we start with constitution budget buildings (laughs) you know yes yes what Uh you're doing is you're starting with discipleship and gospel and now it's creating all sorts of issues that you got to wrestle with yes yeah yes and that that's my hope again you know i said earlier that I'm just too old to play church. Mm. And, uh, I, I, I don't want to do that. I want to see God do a work that will transform our community. Mm. And, uh, I, I believe that if Christians will engage in the great commission through obedience, through a genuine love for Jesus, that we can see a movement begin that will transform our community. And if it goes beyond that and spreads beyond that, praise God. Mm. But really, that's my heart. And uh, one of the things that I've noticed as a pastor, this would be one of the one of the most amazing discoveries in this process, is as we have engaged our folks in disciple making, and they are without. I mean, they are. They know that's what we're about. That's what we're talking about. Um, that the Enemy attacks have increased dramatically so that we have a significant disproportionate number of our people as is typical as a pastor. I've been a pastor now for 24 years, so hmm. it's been a while. Um, I, the, uh, uh, the number of people who are dealing with life threatening sicknesses hmm. and diseases and death of family members and kind of bizarre, hmm. um, you know, unusual kinds of illnesses and so on. That is much higher than I've ever experienced as a pastor. And see, I'm telling you the truth. Almost zero self-inflicted problems that I'm dealing with as a result of sin. Hmm. (laughs) I I just have never seen anything like it. You know, normally you're counseling, marriages are falling apart and kids are rebellious and we're having all these issues and a pastor spends enormous amount of energy ministering to people who are struggling with problems that their own disobedience has caused. Hmm. Now, you know, I, I say that with grace. I don't mean that with judgment. I'm just saying that's what's true. Yeah. We're, we're having virtually none of that. Hmm. And the passage that keeps ringing in my ears is Philemon 6 in the NIV. And it says this, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will come to understand all the good things we have in Christ. That as you become active in sharing your faith, both by what the Word of God says and by my experience, I'm seeing that people are learning what they have in Christ. They're falling in love with the Lord like never before. And and they're walking in more obedience. Hmm. I'm I'm the opposite of legalistic. I just I don't. It's not me. I'm I'm grace guy. You know I want. Hmm. I, I, that's not. We're not harsh and putting down the law or anything. Even when people 
say they will obey and they don't, we're not coming down on them. We're just saying, hey, how can we help one another obey? Hmm. Don't be ashamed. I, you know, I noticed people were hiding from me when they weren't obeying. And I would run into them and, oh, I'm feeling bad, Pastor, because I told you I was going to start that group and I did. I said, look, wait, you don't have to feel bad. We're all on this journey together. We're helping each other learn to obey Jesus more fully. And we're here as, as helpers. I'm not, you don't report to me as like I'm your authority. You report to the Lord. You and I are supposed to help each other learn to be more effective in obeying what God has called us to do. And uh, that's been a neat experience. So just from a practical standpoint, I encourage pastors to, to consider what we're talking about because uh, it, it, that's been amazing to me to watch that where it's been, you know, a lot of people who are sick, but not people who are who are uh, dealing with problems they've caused for themselves. Yeah. So it's been a really neat thing to see. Well, Gary, uh, Jeff was right to connect us. It's it's oh, been just a, a real treat to talk to you about these things. And well, I appreciate your ministry, Steve, and and. Uh, you know, read your books and just encouraged to be able to talk with you today. And, and, uh, you know, no, no agenda here other than, uh, just encouraging my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that, uh, that I believe this is what the spirit is saying to the churches. 